chapter 6. I'm going to back up and read the whole chapter. We dealt with the first part of the chapter uh, last week, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the first four seals, and then there's seal 5 and seal 6 that we'll deal with this morning. But let's back up. Let's read the whole chapter so we get the full context, get the full flow of what's happening here. Chapter 6, Revelation 6, verse 1, John says, Then I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud voice, with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that men should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he had opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. This rider's name was Death. Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. And when he had opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth. The, the, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. When Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling on the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Who can stand? You know, up until this point, we, we've Revelation has been pretty straightforward. I mean, it's, there, there have been differences of interpretations of certain symbols and so forth. But up until this point, chapters 1, 2, 3, we, the, the seven churches, pretty straightforward. Chapter 4, chapter 5, pretty straightforward. And then all of a sudden we get to the seals and the seals start breaking. And now this is where Revelation uh, becomes a little more difficult to try to understand. And again, you have to understand, this is, this is apocalyptic literature. So it's written. It's full of symbols. It's full of... Um, Things that we, we try to get behind the symbols and understand what is John writing and what is God revealing to those people that were reading this uh, letter at the time. I don't know if you remember, it's about 1993, somewhere in the early 90s. Uh, on Netflix, there's been this series, Wake Up, and uh, we watched it, and it kind of got me interested. You remember David Koresh? You remember uh, his name was Vernon Powell? And uh, David Koresh, it kind of got me interested in thinking back, because I remember Branch Davidians, I remember Waco, you know, I remember Mount Carmel, I, re I, I sort of vaguely remember all that, but uh, so I, I started going back, I was, I was kind of curious about some of that, and um, in, in the series, they bring out some of it, but the Branch Davidians had been around for a long time, they'd been around since the 1930s, so David Koresh didn't, you know, start a, a you know, they were calling it a cult at the time. They were actually an offshoot, a branch of the Seventh-day Adventist. And uh, there was a founder, and then there, you know, he dies, and another one uh, takes control of the group and so forth. And actually, David Koresh, who was Vernon Powell at the time, he, he, he changed his name to David 
King David, and Koresh because he saw himself as Cyrus, King Cyrus, the Persian king that delivered the people of Israel from the Babylonians. And so Koresh was Hebrew for Cyrus. That's why he chose the name David Koresh. But he had been in the group for a while. It's not like he just strolled out to Waco, started a group, went nuts, got a bunch of guns and threatened and we had to go in and you know you know what happened. Uh, the end of that, I think is 70 something people died. But here's the interesting thing. Koresh's whole message and the Branch Davidians going all the way back to their beginning in the 1930s had to do with the end times. In fact, Koresh said that he was a prophet and he called himself Messiah, but not, he, didn't, he didn't think he was Jesus. He didn't think it that, but he called himself a prophet Messiah. And he claimed to have the secret insight into the seals of Revelation. Now, he's not the only one in history who's come along and said, ah, we got the key to the seals. We got the key to the book of Revelation. If you think of that kind of thing, you just need to say, ah, you know, not so sure that this is going to take us down a good path. Well, Koresh ended up, you know, you know what happened. At least you remember what happened. The standoff, the fire, 70-something people died. But the interesting thing is that Koresh claimed to have the secret insight into the seals of the book of Revelation. What was amazing is that people came literally from all over the world. And they all said they came there because, and look, these weren't dumb people. They weren't, you know, uneducated. These were people that, some of them had PhDs, some of them had college degrees. Well, one of them was a graduate of Harvard. And they all flocked there. They're following him because they, they were just, they were taken by his insight or what he claimed to have insight from God about the seven seals of the book of Revelation. And they followed him. It was amazing. Now, I don't claim that kind of insight. I don't claim to have any insight other than what, as I look at this and try to understand it, and as, as God leads in that understanding and trying to understand what John's writing, I, I don't claim any special insight. I'm not a prophet. I'm not you know, saying I've got the keys to the book of Revelation. None of that. There have been plenty of people who have claimed that, and they've all been wrong. There have been date setters before. There have been date setters as recently just within you know, the past 10 years who have claimed to have some type of insight into Revelation and led people astray and so forth. That's not the purpose of this. The purpose of our digging into the book of Revelation is to try to understand what's there. Not get behind every little crook and cranny, get behind every little symbol and come up with some kind of code and come up with some kind of key insight that's not the purpose of the book of Revelation. That's not what we saw in the beginning as we started this book. That's not what we'll see throughout this book. That's not the way this book's going to end. This book was written by John on the Isle of Patmos. And we'll get into the structure and dating later because that's, that's going to be important, especially after we get through chapter 7. We'll deal with that because that does have some impact in how we see the book of Revelation. But I don't think the book of Revelation, John is writing on the Isle of Patmos, he's writing to people, he's writing to the seven churches, he's writing, God's revealed this to him, and he's writing, and there was something that was meant for them. There was something that was meant for them. There was, there's this great encouragement, and, and the centerpiece of all of this, especially as we saw in chapter 4 and chapter 5, is God's on his throne, and at the center of all of God's purposes in redemption and judgment is a slain lamb, the crucified Messiah. That's the key. That's the, that's the thrust of the book of Revelation. And then how this unfolds. And if we miss Christ, we miss it all. If we come away with some sort of insight or supposed insight about symbols and seals and trumpets and bowls and dates and this, we miss it all because that's not what God's communicating in the book of Revelation. What he's communicating is his glory, his plan, his purpose in redemption and judgment. And the center of all this is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we see over and over and over. That's what we see in these seals. We see the plan, the seals, or the plans and the purposes of God in redemption and judgment, and we need to take it serious. God is still speaking. God speaks clearly. God speaks consistently. God speaks coherently. And we're at fault when we take him too casual. We're at fault when we take him, we don't take him serious. And this has been a theme as we started chapter six. This is sort of a, a theme that 
that, that I've been developing is why do we take him casually and how do we take him casually? And we've dealt with that in past messages and so forth. But whenever we're confronted by moral evil and we're confronted by natural evil, which we've been confronted the last couple of months of natural evil with coronavirus, then the temptation is that we start to retreat as believers, we start to retreat from our Christian worldview. We start to make excuses for God. We start to try to excuse this as if, well, maybe he really doesn't mean it. Maybe he really, you know, it's just evil and evil sort of has the upper hand. And why, gee, we hope God can work this out and we hope that he's with it. Or we try to tame him and say, well, you know, God's really not that bad. Maybe in the Old Testament he did some bad stuff. There's people that view God that way. The Old Testament God was mean and evil and bad, full of wrath. The New Testament God in Christ is love and mercy and peace and joy. The only thing about that is Jude kind of blows that out of the water when he says, he, he, the people he's writing to, and he, he says, I want to remind you about something. Jesus delivered a people out of the land of Egypt. Yeah, Jesus delivered them out of Egypt. Wait a minute, I thought that was Old Testament. I thought that was Moses. I thought it's the Old Testament God. No, Jude says, Jesus delivered them out of the land of Egypt and afterward destroyed those who did not believe. You see, he speaks in wrath. He speaks in judgment. And we do well to listen. We do well to hear him and understand what he's saying what he's trying to say to us. He speaks clearly, consistently, coherently. If we don't hear his voice, then what we end up doing is we end up panicking, we end up grasping for straws, we end up chasing all sorts of things, we end up not knowing who to believe, right? Over the last couple of months, is that not where we've been when we've looked at man and said, man, save us. Man, save us from coronavirus. And what's happened? Government can't save us. Science can't save us. Medicine can't save us. We'd better hear the voice of God in this. And we'd better understand that he alone is the one who can save us. And so we need to be able to think clearly in this. To think with a clear, consistent, coherent Christian worldview. And that's one of the ways that we don't take him serious. And one of the ways we treat him so casually. Because we like to think about, yes, there's salvation and the blessings and all of that stuff. But let natural evil like this raise its head. And all of a sudden we jump out of our Christian worldview. And we start thinking all kinds of crazy things. Now we need to hear his voice. And I think it's, he speaks so clearly in these seals and the judgments that we see in the seals. Again, in chapter 4, there's the scene. He's sitting on his throne. In chapter 5, there's the lamb who steps forward. He's able to take the scroll. And again, the scrolls, the whole purposes of God in judgment and redemption. Who can take it? John's weeping. Weeping. Because if no one can break the seals, then God's purposes aren't going to go forth. And here comes the Lamb, steps forward, takes the scroll, and begins to break the seals. And that's what we see beginning in chapter 6. Now, chapter 6, the seals. There's the six seals. There's a break in chapter 7. We see the 144,000. Lord willing, we'll deal with that next week. And actually, the scroll itself is not opened until the seventh seal's broken. And that happens in chapter 8, verse 1. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets. So the seventh seal is broken. The scroll appears at this point. It appears that the scroll is opened. There's silence. There's seven angels. There's seven trumpets. And then here come some more judgments. And we'll deal with the structure a little more when we get to that point. The breaking of the seals, the first four seals that are broken, the four horsemen of the apocalypse that we dealt with last week. The first one, this military conquest that happens. The first seal, these four living creatures. He heard the first one say, come, and what did he see? A white horse. And who is this on the white horse? The rider had a bow and a crown. He's conquering to conquer. In other words, it's military conquest. Now again... Every time we get to this, one of the first things that people want to know is what's the time here? What's the time sequence here? Or when is this going to happen? I told you last week, the content of these seals fits Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse. The content fits that. 
The, the, the apocalyptic literature we see in places in the Old Testament. We see it in some of the prophets where they speak about these horses and so forth. But the content seems to be what Jesus was saying in the Olivet Discourse. And so we see this military conquest. Was there military conquest at the time of John's writing in the first century? Yeah. Who was the military conqueror at the time? It was Rome. Has there been military conquest throughout the history of the world since then? Yes. Is there going to be military conquest in the future? Yes. Is it going to be intensified? Yes, I think so. And so the first seal, white horse, military conquest. And then there was the second seal. And he hears the living creature say, come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace. Notice how this, the come, it's to the rider, it's to the horse. God's in control of all of this. They can't come out until he says come out. And also here with the second rider, he can't take peace. It was granted to him to take peace from the earth. Whatever was restraining, he removed. He was allowed to remove. It reminds us of Paul, doesn't it? There in 1 Thessalonians, that which, or 2 Thessalonians, the one that's restraining is going to continue to restrain until he's taken out of the way, whether that's government or the Holy Spirit or the church or whatever. But again, it screams at us. God's in control of all this. So he takes peace from the earth so that men should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. So there's this civil unrest. There's this men are slaughtering each other. Military conquest, civil unrest. Have we seen civil unrest in the history of the world? Yes, we have. Was it there in the first century? Yes, it was. In fact, if if Revelation's written pre-70 AD, the destruction of Jerusalem, it's just a few years before a great civil unrest happens when Rome destroys Jerusalem. But there were other civil unrest. There have been civil unrest throughout the history of the world where people have slaughtered each other, civil wars and, and the like. Will there be more in the future? Yes. Will it be intensified? Probably so. Then there's the third seal that we looked at. And I heard the third living creature say, come. come." And looked and behold, a black horse and its rider, a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarters of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. This scarcity, famine, economic woe. All of a sudden, inflation. All of a sudden, a day's wage only buys you what you could survive on for one day. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine if whatever you make in a day, that's, 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 that's what it would take you to live on for that day? Normally, a day's wage would buy 10 to 12 times the amount of what they needed to sustain themselves. Now, these aren't luxuries. This is just what you need to get by. Inflation, economic Whoa, have we seen that? Did that happen in the first century? Yes. Have we seen it throughout the history of the world? Yes. Is it going to happen in the future? Yes. I mean, if there's anything the coronavirus has shown us is that, at least economically, something, not an invasion by a foreign army, not an asteroid hitting the earth, not nuclear war, but a virus shut down the world's greatest economy. A virus. Is it going to happen again? Yeah. Is economic problems going to happen again? Yes. Then he opens the fourth seal, the fourth horseman. And here he comes. And he looked, a pale horse, an ashen horse, death. The color of the horse is, is, is the color of a corpse. It's death. And its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him, and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with a sword and with famine and pestilence. By wild beasts to the earth. So this is death of all kinds here. These four horsemen. Again, even with the the fourth seal. Did that happen in Rome? Yes. Has it happened throughout the history of the earth? Yes. Will it happen in the future? Yes. Yes, it will. So the content fits the Olivet Discourse in this, at least in this sense, that Jesus talked about in the Olivet Discourse, these birth pains. In other words, there would be signs. There would be things happening. Are these preliminary judgments? Probably so. These are probably preliminary judgments before we actually get to the judgments that come beginning, I think, in chapter 8. But we're not through because there's six seals that are open. Those four seals go together. They happen pretty rapidly. And they fit together. 
But then the fifth and sixth seal are, are distinctly different. And one of the first things we have to decide when we get to verse 9 in the fifth seal is are we still on the earth or has the scene shifted to heaven? I think the scene has shifted to heaven. That's what I think when the fifth seal is opened. And this is what he says dealing with the fifth seal. And if you remember when we started this section, we, we grouped the seals and looking at them in two groupings. That first grouping, the first four seals, and now the second group, seal five and six. And so this is what we read in verse nine. When he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain. Notice why they had been slain. Very strong word here. Not just killed, not just murdered. They were slaughtered. Very strong word that's used here. So he opens the fifth seal. John sees under the altar the souls, of those, the souls of those who had been slain. Now, if we're on the earth here, and those who take this to be that the scene's still on the earth, then it, it, it appears that what John sees, the altar that he's referring to, would have to be some type of pagan altar. If it's still on the earth, then it must be some type of pagan altar, and these are the souls of those who had been killed, slain, slaughtered, and he sees their souls under the pagan altar. I don't, I don't think that's it. I, I think the best understanding of this is that now we're seeing in heaven. And what altar is this? We don't know. There were several altars in the temple. I think these souls that have been slaughtered, this altar that he sees, I think we're in heaven. And this is why they were slain. This is why they were slaughtered. One, for the word of God. Their association with the word of God. Their association with the gospel. And for the witness they had borne. The testimony that they had borne. So it's quite obvious that these are believers. These are Christians. These are God's people. These are ones who have come to faith in Christ, trusted Him, and it's their association with the gospel. It's their faith in Christ, their belief in the gospel, and their witness that they had borne, their testimony that they had borne. Was this verbal? Probably so. In the first century, what got them killed? What got them killed in the first century from Rome was saying Jesus Christ alone is Lord. They could say Jesus is Lord. So is Caesar. Caesar was Lord. And that's what the Romans run around. Caesar's Lord. Caesar's Lord. But what got the Christians killed in the first century by the Romans? Christ alone is Lord. Now do the same thing today. You can run around and say Jesus is Savior. Jesus is Lord. And people won't mess with you much. Because they'll just think, yeah, okay, so is everything else. But you stand in public and say, Jesus Christ alone is Lord. And look out. Look out. And see what happens. So this is why they were slaughtered. Their association with the gospel, the witness, the testimony, probably their lives as well, because they would not participate. You remember going through the seven churches? You remember some of those churches in some of those places, the Christians that were suffering from the pagans in those areas, and they would not participate in trade guilds and those sorts of things. So, you know, if you were a bricklayer and you wanted to work and you had, you had a job as a bricklayer, you had to join that guild, which was like a union, and if you joined that guild, you had to worship the God of that guild, and if you didn't worship the God of that guild and you were kicked out, you couldn't work so it's probably not only just their verbal witness and testimony but their lives as well they refused to participate in these pagan things they could not do it and they suffered they suffered they were slaughtered for it you know what's interesting though is when you read the bible and you read the book of acts you know who the first persecutors of the christians were it was the, it was the jews the Jews were the first persecutors of the early Christians. And Rome looked at the Christians as just a sect of Judaism. They weren't worried with them. And they just looked at it and thought, okay, this is just a squabble within Judaism. But then all of a sudden the gospel grows and people are converted and the gospel makes inroads into the Roman Empire. Officials are converted and as time goes by, these Christians get more and more and more and they're multiplying more and more. It's sort of like, you know, when you go back to Egypt, 
And there and they say, wow, man, all these Jews, man, these people, these Jewish people, these Israelites have multiplied to the millions. And you remember what Pharaoh said? If we don't do something with them, they're going to outnumber us and they're going to take us over. Well, you could just imagine the same kind of thinking with Rome. And then Rome begins to persecute. The first great persecutor of Christians in the Roman Empire was Nero in the mid to late 60s. In the first century, he was the first great persecutor, and he was horrible. He slaughtered Christians. He set them on fire and lit his gardens and rode around in his chariot watching Christians burn to light his garden so that he could see his garden. He was horrible. Nero was insane. And after Nero, there were persecutions. There were waves of persecutions in the Roman Empire. So eventually they got to the point where they realized, wait a minute, this Christian thing's not Judaism. And in 70 AD, Rome's destroyed, and there's a clear break between Judaism and the early church and the Christian faith, and then it was game on. And Christians were slaughtered and killed. So he sees these souls under the altar, slain for the word of God and the witness they had borne. And this is what they cry out. This is what's interesting. They cry out with a loud voice. Loud voice. O sovereign Lord. An interesting word that they use here in the Greek is it's a despot, despotos, which means master. Master, O sovereign one. Notice what they say. You are the sovereign one. You are holy and true. You are the only one who is holy, righteous, and you are the only one who is true. And here's their cry. How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? The phrase, those who dwell on the earth, in the book of Revelation, we'll see it in chapter 11, we'll see it again in chapter 17, but that phrase is a clear reference to people on the earth who are not Christian. They're unbelievers. And so how long is it? How long will it be before you avenge our blood? How long will it be before we get justice? Again, why have they been slaughtered? Because of their association with Christ and the gospel. They've been slaughtered. God, how long is it going to be before we get justice? Now you have to understand something here. Because sometimes people read into this that this is sort of personal vengeance on their part. This is not personal vengeance. They are not crying out for personal vengeance. You know what personal vengeance is? Somebody does something to you. I mean, there are movies, there are series, there are books that have been written about, you know, somebody kills somebody's family member and what do they do? They spend the rest of their lives seeking personal vengeance and finally the day comes and they square off with the one and they, you know, they, they fight and they struggle and they get their vengeance. That's not what's happening here. That's not what they're asking for here. There is a sense in which when you read the Old Testament, particularly the Psalms, David will make prayers in which he calls down the wrath of God on his enemies. And he'll call down the wrath of God. And he'll say things like, God, blot them out of his book. Blot them out of your book, Psalm 69. Psalms 58, another place, strong language. God, let them be like stillborn children who never see the sun. He prays these prayers that God will deal with David's enemies. They're called imprecatory prayers. There's always a debate. Are we right? Should we be, do we have a right to pray these imprecatory prayers and God's wrath come down upon our enemies and so forth? But even that, I don't think, captures what their cry is here. It seems to be that their cry and their concern here is that how long will it be before justice is served is that if God does not avenge them and God's justice does not come, then everything about God unravels and everything that they stood for and believed and their slaughter means nothing if the justice of God does not come. They anticipated the justice of God. They knew. That's why they say to him, O Master, O Sovereign One, holy, righteous, just, and true. We know your justice is coming. How long is it going to be? How long is it going to be? I mean, think of America just a second. I mean, if we're thinking at all biblically, and we're thinking at all through a Christian worldview and trying to understand 
And, and you know, we've talked about coronavirus, and I'm, I'm almost getting tired of talking about, you know, that and so forth. But there's so much other stuff. If we're thinking biblically, should we not expect the justice of God and the wrath of God on America? I mean, should we not, if we're, if we're thinking biblically, our cry and looking and saying, how long, God? How long are you going to withhold it? How long are you going to stay your hand of judgment? I don't know. Maybe coronavirus is the start. I don't know. Should we expect God to do something? Look back through the history of his people. Look back through the history of the Old Testament. Look back through the history of the church. The nation that has forgotten God, forsaken God. What was the promise to that nation? You're not going to be blessed. You forsake me, then this is what's going to happen. Did it not happen to Israel? Did it not happen to his own people to the point to where he finally said, enough's enough? 722, northern kingdom destroyed by the Syrians. 586, the southern kingdom destroyed by the Babylonians. Prophets come on the scene and what do the prophets say over and over and over? You broke covenant and you were warned. America has been warned over and over and over and over and over and over. And we ignore it, we excuse it, we make excuses for God, we try to tame it, and we try to say God had nothing to do with it, and why that's just things that happen, and so forth, and we're not listening, and God's speaking clearly, consistently, coherently. We better start listening, right? We'd better start listening. Now, I pray for mercy. I don't want, I'm not, I'm not like the, when Amos says, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Don't you understand what's going to happen when it comes? Don't you understand? It's not going to be pretty. The judgment of God is not pretty. Has coronavirus been pretty? Absolutely not. Horrifying. And here they are. They're praying and they're crying out to God. How long? Justice. But then God's answer comes. And God didn't give some little trite answer like we're so, we're so, we do this so much, you know, someone comes and they have a problem, we say, ah, it's okay, you know, God will see you through it. Or whatever, one of the things we, we, we always say, oh, we'll pray for you. God will see you through it. Look, whatever doesn't kill you is going to make you stronger. That kind of stuff. These trite sayings that mean nothing at the end of the day. That's not how God responds. God responds with something shocking. And this is what he says in verse 11. Then they were each given a white robe. This white robe, victory, um, possibly righteousness that we've seen before in the white clothing. We'll see it again, the righteousness of Christ possibly. But they were given a white robe and they were told to rest a little longer. Just calm down. Just calm down. Be patient and rest. Now this is not the final rest. Uh, to understand, they've been slain, they've been slaughtered. He sees them again, I think, in heaven, under the altar. They're in heaven. But the end is not yet. They've not been resurrected yet. They don't have their glorified bodies yet. They don't have their resurrected bodies yet. And they're told to rest, just wait. It's coming. This may be a foreshadow of the final rest that's coming. After the resurrection, eternity. But God says, God gives them a white robe, tells them to rest a little longer, and then this is what he says, and this is shocking. Can you imagine hearing this? God, we're suffering. You know, when's your justice going to come? Uh, rest, be patient, uh, you're going to suffer some more. Well, you're not, but people that you know, they're, they're going to suffer some more. More is coming. And that's what he tells them. Until the number, rest a little longer, until the number of their fellow servants... These are fellow believers and their brothers, fellow believers, brothers and sisters, should be complete. Who were to be killed as they themselves had been. That's shocking. Rest, it's not yet, there are more of you are going to die. More of you are going to die. There are going to be more souls under this altar. They're going to be more slaughtered for their faith. Wait a minute, God. You, we're asking for justice, and you're telling us that's justice? 
that more of us are going to die? I mean, that, that might be the natural reaction, right? I mean, think about it. We can go back to the prophets. Go back to the prophet Habakkuk. I, Habakkuk's saying, God, you need to deal with this stuff. You need to deal. Your people are wicked. Your people are horrible. I am going to deal with them. I'm raising up the Babylonians, and I'm going to judge my people with the Babylonians. Habakkuk says, wait a minute, God. You can't do that. The Babylonians are worse than your people. You are just. You are righteous. And you're going to take in moral people and judge your people. And Habakkuk had the whole problem with that. And we've talked about that before. Some of the other prophets had the same issue with God. How can you do that? How can you say that? Doesn't this make God unjust? Wouldn't a just God say, you're right, I'm going to end the slaughter now, and I'm going to stop it now, and I'm going to pour out my wrath on those now, and yet God says, not yet. More are going to die. More's coming. In other words, it screams at us what I think through this whole chapter and the breaking of the seals with the Lamb breaking the seals, the only one who can break the seals, the only one who can bring about the purposes of God in redemption and judgment, it screams at us that God's in control of this. God is working this out. He's not flying by the seat of His pants. He's not making up the plan as He goes. He's not reacting to natural evil. He's not reacting to moral evil when it shows up. He is working His purposes. And you just need to wait. You just need to be patient. And you need to rest. And it's going to get worse before it gets better. Now, I think the overall thrust of the book of Revelation, and some disagree with this, but I I think the overall thrust of the book of Revelation, I think the overall thrust of the Bible when we look and think about end times is that it's going to get worse before it gets better. We ain't seen nothing yet. What do we do? Rest. Be patient. The justice of God is coming. It's coming. So there's the fifth seal. These, the souls of those who have been slain. And I, again, I think you want to say, okay, when and... I, I, I think, again, first century, you see it. Throughout the history of the Roman Empire, you see it. Have there been people martyred for their faith throughout history? Yeah. Do you realize over the, since the past 150 years, this is what those who study this say, in the past 150 years, there have been more people martyred for their faith than all the history of the church combined before that. There is an intensifi- intensification There are millions of our brothers and sisters right now under the threat of totalitarian regimes, under the threat of death, and being slaughtered right now. Middle East, China, Russia, places in South America. One of the unreported things about what's happened in the Middle East and one of the underreported things about what ISIS did is ISIS slaughtered thousands of Christians. Slaughtered them. Is it going to intensify? Probably. Probably. And what do we do? Rest. Don't go crazy. Be patient. Justice will come. And so you get to the sixth seal. Verse 12, And when he had opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Man, can you you imagine seeing that scene? Can you imagine seeing that? This cosmic upheaval, shocking, scary, terrifying. You know, the prophets will talk about this. Haggai, particularly Haggai chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 34. Isaiah chapter 2. You see it again in Isaiah chapter 66. This this cosmic evil, judgment of God coming and things like this happening associated with the judgment of God. And notice the response to this from the kings of the earth. Now, these are the unbelievers. These aren't the believers. We saw the response of the believers that have been slaughtered. What do they cry out for? How long? When's justice coming? 
And now notice the response here, the kings of the earth. And, and, and I think, remember, Revelations, John's using symbols. One of the numbers that he likes to use is seven. And you could put this in seven groupings. There's seven groupings of people that are listed here, which may mean, may point to, complete. In other words, this is what all the unbelievers do. This is what all the unbelievers will do. So after the sky vanishes, the scroll is rolled up, every mountain and island was removed from its place, and then the kings of the earth and the great ones of the generals and the rich and the powerful and every slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains and calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, chapter 4, and from the wrath of the Lamb, the Lamb, chapter 5, the one breaking the seals, for great... For the great day of their wrath is come, and it ends with this question, who can stand? There are a number of places in the Old Testament when this question is asked, who can stand? 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 20 is 1. Ezra chapter 9, verse 15. Malachi, the last writing prophet, ends with this sort of, in, in his message about the judgment of God's coming, the wrath of God is coming, and in connection with that, who can stand? Who can withstand it? No one can. You're going to stop it? You're not going to stop it. I'm not going to stop it. It's coming, and who can stand? But notice their response here. They cry out. They cry out for the rocks to fall on them. They hid themselves in caves and among the rocks and calling for the mountains and rocks, fall on us! Now, this is not true repentance. Don't read into this that all of a sudden they've repented and they're turning to God. They're not turning to God. They're running from God. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 3, you remember when Adam and Eve, when they sinned and they realized they've sinned, what did they do? They hid themselves from the presence of God. They hid from God. And it was God's grace and mercy. God reaches out to them. Here's the same thing is happening. The wrath of God is being poured out. And what do the unbelievers do? They don't all of a sudden fall down and throw down their arms and say, okay, we give up, we repent, we believe. No, they run and they hide from him. And they're crying, just save us. Get us away from this wrath. Now, I think in this, what may be behind this cry here is that they realize, they realize they were wrong. They were wrong. And they realize here in this cry, in this cry to hide themselves, they realize God is right. And there's not a repentance on their part. They go further and further into their rebellion. It's sort of like in Numbers, when Korah's rebellion that happens in Numbers. And, and, and when that happens in, in Korah's rebellion, they realized at the end, those who were with Korah realized they had offended God. And God's judgment comes on the house of Korah there. The earth opens up, swallows them up. I think that's what's going on here. All, they realize, these unbelievers, they realize they've offended a holy and righteous God. And here is His wrath. And they don't turn in repentance. They hide themselves. They run from him. They're trying to get away from his wrath. But then who can stand? Who can stand? Who can stop it? No one. Who can get away from it? No one. This is what the prophets tell us about when the day of the Lord come. Amos is clear about this. When it comes, what's going to happen? You think you can escape? You're going to run to your house and think you're safe? No. You're going to get bitten by a serpent when you rest your hand on the doorpost. Or you're going to get eaten by a lion trying to get to your house. You cannot escape the wrath of God. It's coming. Nothing's going to save you. Your armies can't save you. Your science can't save you. Your technology can't save you. Your governments can't save you. It's coming. It's coming. You see, I think in these seals, God is speaking clearly, consistently, and coherently. And He still speaks in the language of judgment. He still speaks in the language of judgment. And what we need to do, what we better do, is we better hear Him. 
We better stop treating him so casually. We better stop treating him so flippantly. We better start taking serious the whole counsel of God. We better start taking serious the whole counsel of God, all of his word. We better stop trying to compartmentalize God and say, I like him on Sundays and I like him for salvation and I like him for blessings. And if I get sick, I like to pray to him. If I have an issue, I like to pray to him. If my husband goes nuts, yeah, I like to pray to him and ask him to change my husband. If my children are going crazy, I like to pray to him and ask him to change my children and that kind of stuff. And usually those are, and there's a place for that. I'm not downplaying that. God cares for us in every area. But again, let natural evil raise its head. Let moral evil raise its head. And for some reason, we act as if we don't know what he's saying. We don't know what he's saying. Well, in fact, maybe he's not speaking in it at all. Has he spoken in every war that's ever happened in the history of the world? Yes, he's spoken clearly. Has he spoken in every earthquake? Has he spoken in every hurricane? Has he spoken in every tornado? Has he spoken in every other natural evil that's happened? Yes, he has. Has he spoken in every moral evil that we've seen? Every little dictator, every little Hitler, every little Saddam Hussein, every little ISIS, has he spoken in that? Yes, he has. The same way that he's speaking when we have those issues that we go through and we cry out to Him and we look for Him and we want to know what do I do about this particular issue in my life and finances or whatever it is, marriage or whatever it is, health, what do I do? It's the same. He's speaking the same in when evil raises its ugly head. He's speaking clearly, consistently, and coherently. And we better listen to Him. This is the issue. We better listen to Him. We need to hear Him. We need to hear Him in everything so that we can, in turn, think consistently, coherently, clearly, and think through life in a Christian worldview, from a Christian worldview, so that we see Him in everything. We see His hand, we hear His voice in everything. That's part of the problem. That's why when it comes to when something like this happens that, that we get scatterbrained sometimes. Because we're not listening to Him. We're not looking for Him in everything. I better hear Him. We've looked at this a couple of times over the last couple of weeks in John 10. My sheep hear my voice. They're not going to follow a stranger. They hear my voice. And when he speaks, we hear him. How do we hear his voice? How, how do we hear him? I mean, that's, that's an issue, right? I mean, if we're to listen and do how do we do this? We do it in his word. We do it by staying in his word. If I'm not in his word, I'm not going to hear his voice. We do it in word and spirit and working in our hearts and working in our minds and we pour over his word. We get to know him in his word. We get to know Him in, 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 in the church, in the context of the church with other believers in worship and all of that. We get to know Him in His Word and the working of the Holy Spirit. And at the center of His message, at the center of what He's saying, at the center of what He's always saying is the Lamb that was slain. At the center of His message, and we'll see this throughout the rest of the book of Revelation when we start to see this wrath unfold. At the very center of all of that is a lamb that was slain. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the glory of the lamb. It's the glory of the lamb that was slain. It's the glory of a wonderful Savior in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those souls that were slain, slaughtered, association with Christ, right? Justice is coming. We get to chapter 7, we're going to see a whole bunch of other people whole bunch of other people associated with the Lamb. At the center of His message is this Lamb. If you miss Him, you miss it all. I don't care what kind of key and what kind of understanding you may develop and think you've developed through the book of Revelation and you can 
say you got all kind of mysteries solved and all kinds of this and that. But if you miss the Lamb, if you miss Christ, you've missed it all. You've missed it all. Sin, evil, who's defeated it? It's Christ. Do I hear Him? Can I see Him? Can I hear Him and see Him and follow Him? And not panic? And not act stupid when things happen? Think clearly, think consistently, think coherently, see Him in everything. Can I see that? Maybe the problem is you need to get in His Word more. You need to be in His Word and then you begin to see and He begins to open things up to you. But here's my warning, and I'm going to close with this warning. Because I would be amiss if I didn't say this. Remember Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. Later on, he'll tell the Jews, you can't hear me. And you don't understand me. And you know why? Because you're not my sheep. Maybe you don't hear him. Because you're not a sheep. Maybe you don't hear him. Because you've never turned from your sin and put your faith and trust in Christ alone. Maybe you don't hear him because you've never truly been born again. Maybe you don't hear him because deep within your heart, deep within your soul, you're still in rebellion against him. You're still loving your sin and unwilling to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ and turn from that sin and put your faith and trust in him. Look, until you do that, you will never hear him. You will never hear him. In fact, continue in your rebellion and you will be one crying out for the rocks to fall on you. Because at some point you're going to realize you've offended a holy and righteous God. Right now, His wrath's hanging over your head. It's hanging over your head right now. And Jonathan Edwards and sinners in the hands of an angry God says the only thing that's kept you out of hell right now is the grace of God. You're dangling on a thread that's burning. You're walking across a bridge on rotten boards and they're cracking and breaking away. They're in, 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 in any moment, boom! There it is. And you're facing the wrath of God for all eternity. The only thing that's kept you out of that pit is the grace of God now. Just turn to Him. That's all you do. Cry out to Him. Cry out to Him and say, save me. And you know what He'll do? He'll save you. He'll save you. He will save you. Not just partially, but He'll save you to the uttermost. And then you'll hear His voice. Then you'll hear it. Let's pray together.